Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live in South Dakota today, and I have the privilege of having Robert Seek on today. He is a fellow compounding pharmacist, and he is going to be discussing the corruption in big pharma and insurance companies. People don't really, maybe not realize, but their their magic insurance card, you know, that they have, I'm just gonna use an example of my hotel card, you know, that magic insurance card that you have and that covers so much, um, I believe it is a complete ripoff when it comes to drug coverage, especially. Um, insurance companies and drug companies are in bed together to rip off the consumers. Most times you would be better off paying cash for your prescriptions than ever using an insurance card. So Robert's going to be talking about some of the corruption that goes on and some of the collusion that goes on with um, big pharma and insurance companies. And hopefully you will be educated on, on why prescription drug coverage is not such a good deal. So Robert, welcome to our show. Hey, good morning, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background, and then we can get into the uh, meat and potatoes of, of the corruption in with drug companies and health insurance companies. Yeah, I got it. Well, graduated pharmacy school a long time ago now. I think it's uh, over 25 years. I graduated in 1990. I went to school in, at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I moved out west where I am now. Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. So I moved out here in 1997. I thought, well, I'll be in Las Vegas for a few years and then I'll move somewhere else. But like I said, that was 1997. I did work uh, retail pharmacy. Uh, I worked for a chain drugstore. Walgreens recruited me to come to Las Vegas. I really didn't like the retail dispensing very much. So I went to the dark side. I wanted to try one of these jobs in pharmaceutical sales. Seem to have good lifestyles. And we make jokes about the uh, work schedule for the pharmaceutical reps, at least at, at the time before GPS time and date stamps, right, for devices that they would carry. We call it the 5T work week, Tuesday through Thursday, 10 to 2. And I did get a job in sales. This is what started to give me some insight in what the drug industry uh, really does. And I had actually uh, over 10 year career in the pharmaceutical industry for a short while in sales, about three years. And then they figured out, well, you, you have a PharmD, we don't use you for sales. Uh, we're going to move you over for clinical trials management. So that was actually a career that I that I liked. 35 clinical trial sites I covered in the Western United States. But before I left industry, I found that there was a small compounding pharmacy for sale in Las Vegas. Uh, put an offer in, bought it, and I've had that pharmacy since 2005. And still had my drug industry career for a while. So I've, I've never been my pharmacy's own PIC. I am the owner and the CEO. And, and here we are today with my compounding pharmacy almost uh, 20 years later. Yeah, well, congratulations. And um, I really, uh, I really like the idea of, you know, being an independent pharmacist and, and compounding. I think compounding is the past, present and future of pharmacy. It's something that can never be taken away from us because we are the experts when it comes to, to compounding. We're the only healthcare professional that's trained to do that. So mm -hmm. I'm glad you went to the dark side and then bought a compound pharmacy. Yeah, it was really interesting, the experience that I got. In fact, I did my, my MBA. Uh, so I kind of wrote a thesis for my MBA. I never published it as a book or anything. Uh, but being on the inside of the drug industry, one thing I became keenly aware of, and being a dispensing pharmacist in regular retail too, why I didn't like it uh, in regular retail, 
people are in their 20s, you know, they're getting one drug. Uh, if people are in their 30s, they're on a couple of, of different drugs. And it just seems like the pile of drugs people are on just increased with each decade of life. Well, this just, this just isn't, isn't right. This isn't health and wellness. So going into the drug industry, uh, one of the things I noticed was, wow, the drug industry's reach to convince the consumer of what the mindset is for what we call therapy. It's only drugs. We're not talking about lifestyle management. We're not talking about getting out in the sun, clean water, clean air. We're not talking about, you know, what, what foods to eat or, or not eat. It's just, it's, it's drugs. And of course, working in dispensing pharmacy, it's like, wow, we're, we're, we're part of that machine. And my MBA right. thesis, one of the main points that I pulled that I used to present to physicians learning hormone therapy. Why should I use this? I've never heard of this before. The doctors are in the audience say, well, because the perception of what medicine is, is created by, well, first guys like me, when I was carrying the bag as a sales representative in the field, okay, the average physician would have seven to eight sales rep calls per day. So we knew the best time to make calls early in the morning because the average sales rep start making calls around 10. You know, I have to clean up coffee for an hour. So if you wanted to get in front of a doctor <laughs> to deliver your message, you had to go. But let's talk about not only that, but the direct-to-consumer advertising. So in my MBA book, I showed a, a picture. I went to a um, medical meeting, a doctor's meeting. It was a real fun party. It's called Digestive Diseases Week. And it's just, it's really something else. And I'm standing in front of the Prilosec NASCAR. So Prilosec, the proton inhibitor drug that's now available over the counter. You know, yep. to reduce the stomach's production of acid. They actually had four cars. So that's a very expensive thing. They have to spend a lot of money on those cars. And NASCAR is, I think it is the most viewed sport on television. It's the most well-attended sport. So having the Prilosec car. And what the manufacturer, AstraZeneca, did to reach the consumer was spend hundreds of millions of dollars. And I had a slide that showed not only Prilosec, but its successor a drug Nexium. Now, what you patent in the drug industry is an NME, a new molecular entity. And even though Nexium, made by the same company, was essentially the exact same molecule with one small change compared to Prilosec, uh, it was a new molecular entity. So drugs get about a 20-year patent life. They're not on the market for 20 years because they file for the patent before the drug is launched. But to extend the patent, you can do things like, well, we'll just have a tiny change to this molecule. And, and that was the drug Nexium. And in the year Nexium was launched, okay, 2003, when I'm working on the MBA, I would say to an audience, whether it's patients or drug or pharmacy, sorry, medical practitioners, would you agree that the consumer product Bud Light is a recognizable consumer brand? And of course, people would. In 2003, Budweiser spent $134 million in direct-to-consumer advertising to reach the consumer. But AstraZeneca spent $234 million to reach the consumer when they launched Nexium. And that's the patients that now ask for drugs by name. And I worked on a project two years ago that gathered data, and it showed that the amount of time a general practitioner spends with patients now is less than eight minutes, 7.6 minutes. And we knew back then, when I'm doing my MBA, is that because of direct-to-consumer advertising, great for the drug industry, 65% of the time a patient visited a doctor, they asked for a drug by name. I need this. And 80% of the time they asked for it, they got it. Because that physician has to go to the next appointment. And I've had physicians tell me, look, I have 
one, maybe two problems I can address for a patient. Uh, it's one or two prescriptions. And if they have more than that, they need to schedule another appointment. And, you know, I know that our topic was to be the corruption in big pharma and with health insurance companies. But one of the key points is that this is where it starts. The corruption of medicine and the delivery of care has just gone to this huge model of driving more and more and more drug utilization, which, yeah. which bothered me. And, you know, like you, uh, found that compounding pharmacy, and I'm on another end of the spectrum now. But that's one of the things I wanted to mention on this show. Well, actually, it ties in a lot to corruption because when you think about it, so drug companies, they love the fact that health insurance companies don't reimburse doctors very much money. So the only way they can make any kind of income is to see more patients and less time. So drug companies love it because you're right. They want to get a, a prescription written as fast as possible. And even me being a pharmacist, when you just said that, it really hit home. It's like, wait a minute. The drug companies really do like the idea of a short appointment because the doctor has no time to explain. Well, let's see, um, you know, your your gastric issues, your stomach issues, um, they might be what you're eating. It might be, you know, diet and lifestyle related. Oh, no, I don't have time to speak, speak about that. I'll just give you Prilosec because you asked for it. I mean, it makes perfect sense that the drug companies and insurance companies love the collusion that's going on. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And because what practitioner has time to talk about just those couple of things that you mentioned to, to really dive deep? And I've asked a number of people say, how many times has a physician in the last five or 10 years actually laid their hands on you? How about yeah. check for bowel sounds? How about just push, push pressure on the abdomen? Wow, does that hurt? And they're like, well, they don't do that anymore. They're, and, and I've talked to some doctors that have broken out of that model. So I don't need, mean to uh, vilify or disparage all medical practitioners because there are many that have exited that model and they're, they're my customers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're prescribing to me and they have a lot of grateful patients. But I had one time I say, Robert, I got to be nothing but an expensive box checker. I wouldn't even look at the patient in the eye. I would listen to them. I would type notes in the electronic medical record, just like I'm on your camera now, and say, okay, okay, okay. Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm, here's the two prescriptions that are for your diagnosis code, and which pharmacy to use. Okay, thanks. So they could just get out of that appointment as quick as possible. Yep. But drug utilization uh, goes way up, and that's just where we started when you and I initially uh, talked about our conversation about corruption in big pharma and health insurance companies. That's just the beginning. But you're absolutely right. Driving drug utilization has been a goal of this whole model. Yeah, it looks like it's working. Now, so tell me a little bit about um, formularies and, and how drug companies, big pharma, get on preferred drugs on certain formularies. Can you explain that so our, cons so our listeners and viewers know when an insurance company doesn't cover something or they need prior authorization or what's going on behind the scenes? Well, one of the biggest things is this. So there's an employer in Las Vegas. He has uh, the company's based in Las Vegas, but has 1,200 employees nationwide. And this guy, gentleman actually asked me, he said, Robert, could I open my own pharmacy and just have that for my employees just for generic drugs and save money? And I told him, I said, we, you could, you know, the prescription drug cost for your employees would be reduced, but your cost as an employer is not. He said, what? Why, why not? I said, because 
you have companies that market to you, whether it's Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and they're looking at you and say, look, it's per member per month that you're going to pay. And he says, that's right. And the rates go up about 3% every year. One company gets me in cheap, and then two or three years later, they start really racking up the rates. It's a tremendous pain to change providers, yeah. but it's really killing me. It's, it's a lot of money that I spend. I said, now, they're offering you this per member per month fee to cover medical, hospitalization, pharmacy, and then you can use other sub-companies if you want as an employer for uh, vision and dental. But let's just focus on the medical and pharmacy. I asked him, I said, can you separate it? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, do you pay one fee for medical and one fee for pharmacy? No, it's just one fee every month. I said, so what good does it do you as the employer right. to lower the drug costs? Because we went over the top 100 generic drugs, which is a large percentage of what his employees used. Okay, so we looked at the formulary, no names, just what, what is being dispensed to your employees. Don, you could have a pharmacy that could save uh, a lot of money on, on your drug cost, but it doesn't save you the employer money. Mm -mm. So what? Where is that per member per month fee going? Which keeps the go. It keeps going up every year. Per member per month fee. That is going to pay the medical providers, but it's also going to pay for the pharmacy benefit. And he said, what he's told by his brokers is the pharmacy benefit is by far increasing at the fastest rate. And why is that? When so many drugs have gone generic. So back to my MBA thesis, I had put in my uh, my thesis that well by 2010. 18 of the top 20 selling drugs of all time would be off patent, okay? And yeah, we talked about the Prilosec to Nexium model, but Prilosec's over the counter now. Nexium is now available generic. You have all your top drug classes, all your SSRIs for depression, off patent. Your PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, Nexium, Prilosec, there's others, off patent. You even have the erectile dysfunction drugs, what we call the PDE5 inhibitors, off patent. So where did the drug industry have to go? They had to go to more expensive drugs. You and I would call them the peptide drugs, but these are these are drugs with molecules that are not tiny. You can swallow molecules that are tiny and get them absorbed. These are molecules that are enormous, okay? And and you have to inject those. And two of the most commonly advertised drugs, back to consumer advertising, are Humira and Enbro for <laughs> rheumatoid yeah. arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. And what do these things cost? Well, you and I know what a generic drug costs. You can dispense a lot of generic drugs. I can do a 90-day supply of certain things for 30 or 40 bucks. It can be, it can be cheap, right? 90-day yeah. supply. Humira and Embro, they're about $1,500 per month. What's paying for that? The employer's per member per month fee. What happens to the consumer? Well, my, my card covers Embro, right? But it's now a top-tier branded drug, and your copay might be $50, $60, $80. And those copays continue to go up and up and up. And there's also you have to factor in deductibles. So where's the money really going? Look at some of the performers as far as stocks on the stock market for some of your top insurance companies. These have been well good-performing stocks for years because they can go squeeze an employer and I have employees, so I'm on a small scale with about 13, 14 employees. And even though I'm not required to provide health insurance, I do provide some coverage. And every year, I see that per member per month fee goes up. So just from my own experience, when I bought the company in 2005, Medical Vision Dental for an entire family would cost $690 to cover for an entire family. And that's, that's top-tier PPO coverage. Now that coverage is about $1,600. Where is that money going? 
it's going to pay for these expensive drugs. The pharmaceutical companies make a lot of money on it. But then we have to talk about the bane of our existence. Well, if you're in traditional pharmacy, the PBM, the pharmaceutical benefit manager, the prescription insurance, what do you think of those in general? John? Well, I can tell you, I haven't dealt with them in over 20 years. Um, but 20 years ago, it's what caused me to get out of get out of regular retail pharmacy and stop billing insurance because, I mean, they are crooks and um, they get away with it because pharmacists let them get away with it. Um, you know, and I just didn't like being ripped off by them. And I realized that they were the ones making the money and the consumer wasn't benefiting. So, you know, we just stopped doing it. But now I hear, I don't even know some of the terms, the details, what they do to pharmacists now um, with some of the payback systems and stuff like that, that pharmacists have to provide. I don't know a lot of the details of it. I've had a guy on our podcast talking about it, but um, from what I understand, you know, it's just another middleman making more money and not benefiting the patient at all. Well, I got out of insurance. I, I stayed in it for too long. 2017, I exited. And I only took insurance at my pharmacy as a convenience for my customers coming to get hormone therapy. But it got to the point in 2017 where as an independent pharmacist, I lost money on over 60% of my claims transmissions. Right. So I'm losing money. I'm not making the money. We just established how the pharmaceutical companies are making money. The employers are paying more and more. The consumers are paying more and more in co-pays. What are are there more mechanisms by which they're 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 just squeezing money out of the consumer, both the employer, you know, and and the patient, their employees? Well, yeah. Here's how it works. I learned when I was in the drug industry, bundling when getting drugs on a formulary. So let's say you have a wonderful antihistamine. It's the best antihistamine. People love it. Your sales reps are out there giving away little white baseballs. You know, they have their arms and legs on them, and, and everybody in the office wants those promotional items, right? So it's like, well, hey, I'd love to write it, but it's not covered by most of the insurances in this city. So the manufacturer goes, well, yeah, we have that antihistamine, but we also have a nasal spray, and we have we have this antibiotic now. So you know what? You, you need some of these drugs on your formulary that your insurance card, your employee's insurance card, your consumer's insurance card is going to cover. But we're not going to give you these drugs one at a time. We have to bundle them. And if you want access to these great antibiotics and some of these other drugs that are used for chronic illnesses, then you have to also take our antihistamine and our nasal spray. Say, well, okay. So the insurance company agrees to, to do that. But then the insurance company, here's where they make money. Now they have to cover that drug. That drug's expensive. It's going to get used a lot, these antihistamines, so they have to jack up that per member per month fee. But then there's another thing they do. They, do, they go to a competing company with a different, say, antihistamine and say, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to put both drugs on the formulary. So now both companies, two different manufacturers of an antihistamine say, well, but we have an incentive for you, Mr. Insurance Company. We're going to we get access to your data, and we want to see that if a certain percentage of antihistamines in your whole insurance system, let's say it reaches 60% for, for our antihistamine, you know what, we're going to give you a rebate, which means you have to shift the prescribing. How do you do that? Well, you said, well, certain antihistamines would be preferred, so the preferred copay is $10 instead of 20 Maybe one company's antihistamine needs a prior authorization. 
but the company that's preferred doesn't need a prior authorization because why? As the insurance company, okay, I'm going to go preferentially because these deals I made, I got to make sure that my doctors and my consumers know that this is the preferred antihistamine. And this is not just antihistamine, it's multiple drug classes. Why? Because at the end of the year, the drug manufacturer is going to say, you know what, you did a good job. You made it 65%. Here's a rebate. And these are millions of dollars, right. tens of millions. And rebates do not get put to the balance sheet of revenue. Revenue is the per member per month fee the employers are paying. What do the insurance companies shell out? Well, they pay out less and less and less, which is why you and I got out of the insurance business. They pay out less and less and less to the pharmacist, and they cover fewer drugs for the consumer with higher copays. But when these rebates come in, those get tucked away by smart accountants in a neat place on the balance sheet that reduces tax burden, perhaps goes to executive compensation. And that is something when you and I first talked and I explained this to you, I said, I was with what we call regional account managers. So as the field-based drug rep carrying my bag and my stuffed little baseballs, okay, uh, I go in and say, well, you're a pharmacist. Why don't you go in and talk with these uh, regional account managers? And maybe you'll have that job in the future. I don't want that job, right? <laughs> I go clinical trials management. But that's how it's done. They negotiate these bundles. They incentivize the insurance provider. But does the consumer take advantage of that multi-million dollar rebate? No. How about the employer? that's paying ever more increasing per member per month fees for drug coverage, well, overall coverage, because you can't separate the two, do they benefit from those rebates? No, not at all. So that's one thing that uh, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of listeners, maybe they, they weren't aware of, this dirty little well, world. I gotta be honest with you, Rob, I'm, I wasn't aware of the details of that. And to think that, you know, the bundling part where, okay, if you want this drug, you gotta take these other drugs, um, on our formulary. I had no idea that happened. And, you know, I gotta be honest, this stuff in any other industry would probably be illegal. Seriously. Oh, I mean, you know, imagine if it was in the, I don't know, the automotive industry, it, 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 if it was in the automotive industry and they were getting kickbacks like that, I don't know if it happened in any other industry and maybe it does, but it would be illegal. I mean, I, you know, it just sounds like mob. It's it's like a mob-like tactic. Well, it's interesting that you mention that because, yeah, it is. Uh, in no other industry could this, I, I think, succeed. But what is the number one most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C., that by far spends the most money three times more than oil companies? It's pharmaceutical companies. Okay. So that money has a lot of it. All that money there stealing from the consumers and the employers to get right. drug costs, right? Uh, that is the most powerful lobby in Washington. So it's it's horribly corrupt. And when you mentioned mobsters, so here's something interesting that I found out. So your major PBMs, the pharmaceutical benefit managers, that's the language we use for who's providing the insurance benefit, okay? Now, there's multiple different insurance cards and insurance companies, so Aetna might contract with, with a, a, a different PBM. But your top PBMs uh, are Caremark, okay? That's your top prescription benefit manager. Your next two are OptumRx and Express Scripts, ESI. And your fourth place is Humana. Well, it's obvious that CVS owns Caremark. CVS chain drugstore bought Caremark. That's why it's called the CVS Caremark Company. What's not obvious is that the next two companies, because if it's good for CVS, why wouldn't Walgreens do it? 
So Walgreens is now the Walgreens Boots Alliance. Boots, the chemist in Europe, bought um, uh, the Alliance drugstores. And Walgreens did an inversion into that company. So it's one big conglomerate now. Okay, Walgreens Boots Alliance drugstores. And a gentleman that ha is a large shareholder and sits on the board, his name's Stefano Pacina. I don't know if he's from Sicily, but he's got a reputation for business. Stefano Pacina also has a board seen as a major shareholder for both OptumRx and Express Scripts. So that's how Walgreens gets preferential treatment. What does it mean for independent pharmacy? So when I had customers say, why are you stopping to take insurance? Say, well, you just got a prescription for meloxicam. I'll just tell you openly, I buy that drug for about $18. I get paid for that drug $16. But Walgreens will be able to buy that drug for $12. They have much better buying capacity because they have thousands of stores. That's okay. But Walgreens gets reimbursed $90. Now, who would orchestrate that unless there was an yep. insider's game? Right? And then Walmart, Walmart owns Humana. So between those four, you now have 70% of all prescription drug claims covered. Okay, let's go through those again. So um, Walgreens, Walmart, who else? Who are the four? CBS. So CVS owns Caremark. Okay. Walgreens, de facto, through board seats and co-stock ownership, owns interest in OptumRx and ESI, Express Scripts. And Walmart owns Humana. There's your two so, PBMs. So anytime a consumer goes and uses their insurance card at one of those pharmacies, which I got to think, off the top of my head, that's probably... Well over 50% of the pharmacies in the nation. Is that probably true? Maybe not well so, over. You know, a few years it's ago, probably close. There were still 50,000 independent pharmacies left in the country. But I know, sadly, that during 2020, I think we lost at least 5,000 independent pharmacies had to close. And this behavior from these drug companies is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to taking that. You know, if they look at it as territory, like in warfare, okay, we, we want this. They want to define what, what treatment is. Treatment is only drugs. And they want to define, well, who's dispensing them and who's reimbursing for them. So this chain drugstore PBM collusion now is gaining more and more territory at the expense mostly of the, chain, the independent pharmacies. And well, and, and where I was going, Robert, is that at the expense of the consumer, because when the consumer, because the consumer in the end pays for everything. And so when they support one of those pharmacies, because their insurance company tells them Walgreens or Walmart or whatever, it's preferred provider, and they're going to have a lower copay when they go there, they're actually getting ripped off. Mm -hmm. Right. And at least right now, I hate to be a cynic about this. What can the consumer do about it? Because the consumer can say, well, I'm just not going to get my drugs filled on my insurance and I, I'm going to go to an independent pharmacy. I'm going to go pay cash for those generics. The PBM, the insurance company will celebrate that. Great. Because even though we only reimburse pharmacies, small amounts, or we do reimburse Walgreens, which is essentially our own company, the same, you know, a larger right. amount, that's money that we don't have to pay. We don't have to pay for those claims yeah. if you want to reject us, but we're not going to go tell the employers that we're not going to go say, Hey, you know, you're, uh, employee drug utilization went down. So since it's lower, you know what? We really are going to lower, Mr. Employer, your per, per member per month fee that you're paying for your 1,200 employees. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I had, like I said, the reason why I had that conversation is this, this poor guy is just saying every year it just keeps rocketing up, rocketing up, and it's more and more expensive for him as an employer. He says, 
uh, I could get more employees. It's a hard labor market right now. If I could pay a little bit more, but I, but I can't because I have to shove so much to this medical insurance coverage. And they're telling me the representatives are saying that uh, with the insurance companies, well, the pharmacy costs are just are just going way way up because of these expensive drugs, because of these other behaviors, because of the increased reimbursement to chain drugstores that own the PBMs. This is discriminatory. And we, we do have trade groups, Sean, in independent pharmacy that, that cry foul about this, but what they don't get any attention. How, <clears throat> how in the world can they overcome the massive amount of money spent in that DC lobby by Big Pharma? I agree. And that's one of the reasons I got out of billing insurance, because I, I think it's a I think in order to beat the game, you got to get out of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, doctors, like a lot of the doctors that you work with that don't do insurance anymore, that's what they did. They, they know they couldn't beat the insurance game um, and take care of patients the way they wanted to. So they got out. And that's why, you know, my wife and I just got tired of lobbying and helping our trade groups try to fight it because it, it never worked. The only way it's going to work is the pharmacists, healthcare professionals, they stop playing the game mm-hmm. and they just get out of the insurance market. And I do believe, I think they're unfortunately, although, I mean, if you look down the road far enough, I mean, especially if you look at most of the stuff that we do in healthcare is government funded and our government is broke. So eventually we just can't afford to do what we're doing. Um, but in the short term, um, I think healthcare providers do have a way out and I'm optimistic about it. Um, they go cash only. Um, I write about it in my book and there are lots of doctors. There are lots of pharmacists now that um, are doing cash only. In fact, um, I will be at the free market medical association next week. Um, they're having their annual conference in Dallas and there's going to be hundreds of healthcare providers there that are cash only healthcare providers or looking to go cash only. And there are groups now that market specifically to employers um, a different model of health insurance. And it's in, you know, it's basically, um, you know, they use a uh, direct primary care doctor that is, you know, cash only monthly membership. They pay for that for their employees. Then they have some kind of, I don't know how this works in the back end because I'm not an insurance guy, but then they have some kind of major, major, they're mostly self-funded. And they have some kind of major, um, um, uh, major coverage, like fifty thousand dollar deductible or something. And and I'm not using the right terms because I'm not in the insurance industry. But because if you look at most routine stuff for healthcare, going to the doctor, very cheap. Having an MRI, no, it's not cheap. If you have an MRI through your insurance company, it's five thousand dollars. But if you find the right doctor to send you to the right imaging place, you can get an MRI today. No prioritizations, no surprises. Transparent pricing for five hundred bucks. You can get an MRI in 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 um, Florida all day long for four hundred dollars because it's really competitive. So, um, and let's face it, pharmacy. Pharmacy doesn't have to be expensive. Pharmacy is cheap. You and I know it. I mean, I would never, I, I don't have routine health insurance and I hopefully I never have to. Um, but a pharmacy benefit is a waste of money because like you said, most generic drugs are super cheap. You can get a 100-day supply for 20 or 30 bucks. Um, and most of those fancy injectable drugs, you don't need. And most drugs, blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, 
you don't need those drugs. You need to just change your lifestyle and you'll save a lot of money and you'll have a lot better quality of life. So I'm optimistic in the way healthcare is going. I know some people think that I'm crazy thinking that, but um, I really, I really believe it. Um, you know, so I don't know. What was your thoughts? You know, I, I agree with you hundred percent because, you know, when I bought the pharmacy in 2005, I'm only 35 years old. I didn't, I didn't really know stuff. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to guess how old you are, Sean, but now that I'm a half century and I'm going to think that maybe you're within a couple of years of that, uh, I've got more experience now. And, you know, hosting the seminars for my local medical practitioners to show them whatever you and I want to call this world, uh, <clears throat> natural medicine, functional medicine, uh, you know, the hormone replacement therapy, what you can do. I used to lead these seminars by saying, well, as a pharmacist who worked in the drug industry, you know, my picture in front of the Prilosec car, right? Uh, I can tell you that if you can address, say, testosterone deficiency, or if you can get a lot of the, not all, but maybe a lot of the refined carbohydrates and sugars out of someone's diet, you can reduce some of these index diseases. But look how many drugs can be utilized for just, say, testosterone deficiency. Look how many drugs can be utilized to treat the symptoms of magnesium deficiency. That's it. I put up a slide and say, look, there's anxiety, migraines, insomnia, poor yeah. blood glucose control. That's four different <laughs> drugs right there. Right. But what if we just yeah. replace magnesium, which is probably that and fatty acids, the top you know, nutrient deficiencies in the country. But who has time to say that? And the Practitioners like, well, we don't learn this in medical school. And we're really grateful that you had this presentation. So we have to go relearn. And I see it growing. Right. So what I see now is practitioners now younger than me that got into medicine, that were trained as, as a PA nurse practitioner, MD, DO. And they get into that expensive box checker model, seeing a patient every eight minutes. Forget this. I'm out. Yeah. And and I have some of them call my pharmacy. Hey, we know what you do. Where did, where did you go learn? What are, what are what are some of the organizations yep. I can join to go learn this stuff? And and you're right, it it really is going to change medicine if we just have the consumer healthier, right? Right. And I think ultimately, you know, I, I wrote a, a book about this, and it's called "Sick and How the Government Ruined Healthcare and um, How to Fix It." And basically, it's got a six step solution in chapter six. And um, you know, the first step is you and I doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, healthcare professionals have to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health, period. I mean, because that's how it's going to get fixed is consumers need to take charge of their own health. There is no health insurance company that is going to fix their health. I mean, at all. Let's face it, Robert, the best health insurance we have is not something that we can buy. It's how we take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm optimistic. I, I really am. Um, I think over the last two years with COVID, I think um, a lot of this has been exposed. I think hospitals have been exposed. I think, um, you know, with the corruption that they have and the money that they've made over COVID and that they don't really care about people's health. I think a lot of these places have been exposed and consumers are catching on. Yeah, I agree, too. I just read a very disturbing article uh, a couple of days ago, and it was about the number of practitioners and hospital systems uh, who were tacitly admitting that for a paycheck, they were forced to code admissions a certain way and follow a protocol 
to treat an inflammatory lung disease, right? But there were doctors in Texas early on in COVID that were on national news saying, why is nobody talking about inhaled budesonide, you know, an anti-inflammatory steroid, simple, cheap, very safe, as one of the options to use for this clearly inflammatory lung disease. But no, the, the hospital-mandated protocol, and we've seen the corporatization of, of the hospital, and where the community practitioner no longer has access to the patient once they're admitted to the hospital. It's hospital protocol only because we've had the rise of the hospitalist. Oh, the patient's ours now. And we're following hospital protocol, yep. corporate protocol. And just like the corporate chain drug stores that wisely saw that their margins were going razor thin because of the PBMs, what did they do? They bought the PBMs. They raised the money amongst their shareholders. They forecasted it out. They bought the PBMs. We're going to, and this was just a small amount of exposures today that you and I talked about on the show for, for pharmacy and that collusion. And like you said, we're going to see a lot more of this exposure come. And I think that's going to propel the rejection of this old corporatized model by not only the consumer, but the learned wise practitioners that also want to reject and get out of that game. You and I are out of that game. It's no insurance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's compounded hormone therapy and vitamins for me, right? That's what, that's what we yeah. sell. I mean, heck, I, I'd like to have a, a, a nice little organic grocery store. And I've talked to uh, uh, some folks that deliver to Las Vegas once a month. They deliver uh, from private farms, uh, grass-fed beef. You know, that's, that's healthy stuff that people need. That is cool, yeah. Right? So I'd like to turn my pharmacy into that. I'm, I'm looking at refrigerators and freezers and say, I, I wonder if this would this would work. But I think you're right. We are on the precipice of some big change. And the consumer interest is high. And the demand is going to continue to grow. And one of the things I'd like to do uh, that I'm learning from you, too, is like, gosh, you know, Sean has, a, Sean has this radio show. I think I need to do that, too. Because how many of these <laughs> topics do you discuss on your show to people here nowhere else and then well home. and yeah and uh, there's my book down there sick and how the government ruined healthcare and how to fix it um and and my my goal as it always has been robert is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health and i you know even on i should say especially on hormone replacement when i educate a patient on hormone replacement i tell them i said look don't you know, don't just believe everything I say. Do your own research, please. I want you to make your own decision. And anytime something has to be mandated or, you know, you have to do this, you know, like you have to go to this pharmacy to get your prescription filled or you have to get this drug in order to get it at a certain copay. Anytime somebody tells you that, you should be really, really cautious about that, right? <clears throat> You know, I, I really like the hormone therapy. You know, it's a big part of my business. And I've had this conversation uh, a number of times, right, where you have an apprehensive patient that's just starting hormone therapy. And uh, maybe even from a practitioner that's newly trained or just asked mm -hmm. my advice. I mean, I've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of cases and say, well, this is what I would suggest. And when the patients start to go off of their other meds, right, they go on progesterone, they start to get off the anxiolytics and the sedative hypnotics to calm them yep. down and make them sleep, okay? They go on testosterone. Now they start to go off of antidepressants and libido returns and say, I, I just feel great, but my insurance company doesn't cover this. You know, and one patient told me, said, I, I really thought this was snake oil and quackery, but I, I had to try something. I was so desperate because my insurance company didn't cover it. 
And, 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 and I'm thinking, well, if my insurance company doesn't cover it, it must not be medicine. And right. <laughs> look at what a brilliant thing that is. Because I just said first, well, how many drugs do people go off of when they have their hormones replete? You've got to have hormones. You have hormones set at the right levels. You just feel better. You don't need so many medications. No wonder the insurance companies don't cover the hormones. Right? No yep. wonder. So. Yeah. It, it, well, and it just is further evidence that insurance companies, they don't want you to be healthy. Um, drug companies, they don't want you to be healthy. Um, just look at the history of, of um, drug companies, especially over the last 20, 30 years when it's gotten way worse. Is They have literally created diagnoses so we prescribe medications for something. A good one is IBS. I mean, I, I love IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. It is just a diagnosis to say, well, what drug are we going to give you now? Do we ever really talk about, wait a minute, irritable bowel syndrome? Do you think it could be caused by what you eat? I mean, come on, <laughs> right? Right. And look at the deft drug commercials. I mean, so much money is spent. And uh, I don't think I reviewed this earlier in my topic when I did my my book, my, my thesis, not published, that in 2003, 60% of all dollars spent for primetime television commercial advertising were spent by pharmaceutical companies. Wow. Okay. It wasn't 60% of the minutes of primetime television advertising, but it was 60% of the dollar spent. Why? Because they tagged onto the best shows at the best yeah. times and the newscasts. And it's almost a joke now. I've seen people put together uh, videos and they post them on different social media platforms. And it's uh, sports programs, athletic events, mm -hmm. like golf events. It's uh, newscasts, uh, special shows, documentaries brought to you by, and one name yeah. is coming up, brought to you by Pfizer. And I have a good friend and, and mentor. He's a, um, he's a physician. Uh, he's done a, a lot of stuff, let's just say, in, in the service of our country, and it still is. And he used to say things to me that sounded outrageous about five years ago. And I said, you know, I said, I know that you're a wise person and you're not lying to me. I said, but none of this information that you're talking about, let's just say for healthcare and healthcare corruption, how our whole system was created, I've never heard of it before. And that's deliberate. So I want you to train me. Where do you know? And one of the first books he gave me to read was called The Nazi War on Cancer. I think the author's name is uh, Robert Proctor. And what you get an idea of is this commercial industry, the way medicine was practiced in the United States before the 1900s, before something called the Flexner Report. Okay, so the Rockefellers and the Morgans, they put together uh, a report and they crushed Rothschilds. Rothschild. That's right. And they crushed medicine as it was in the United States. It was homeopathy and natural medicine. And they brought in the patented pharmaceutical industry and it has been that way ever since and this is the model that was brought from europe and even beyond that you know the nazi uh model you know the nazi war on cancer added to that well how can we create disease because if i just look at side effects of some certain medications because they simply deplete various nutrients right every diuretic okay somebody takes a diuretic they're peeing out all that water they're also peeing out their bones, they're peeing out their magnesium, they're peeing out their zinc. You can't make testosterone without zinc and magnesium in the body, right? 
So I think hypertension is probably overtreated. But then we have these drug-induced nutrient depletions that lead to these other side effects. Well, what if we went beyond that? What if there's a problem with what's in our water? There's water fluoridation, right? We have other toxins that we're exposed to in our environment, and those create disease. Why? Because it's almost as if the cycle of life is, well, like I said in the beginning, you're in your 20s, might be on one drug. You know, all the girls are coming in to get birth control pills. Guys, you know, not really on uh, too much, maybe an anti-inflammatory with a sports injury, but now by 30s. You know, there's more drugs. There's depression, insomnia. Hey, you've entered the workforce, kid. You know, it's, it stinks here sometimes. So <laughs> depression, insomnia. Yeah. I used to make that joke. And, <laughs> and then you have the menopause or andropause ages. And then it's, as you advance in age, it's more and more risk for cancer. And cancer is an enormous moneymaker for the cancer therapy centers and yeah. for the drug companies that make the chemotherapy agents. So in a more precise and more profound sense yeah if we can stay healthier and avoid those cancers right lots of dark green leafies keep the body alkaline these are common recommendations that i make but the vitamin d level so when i would do my little pharmacist presentation on nutrients and data i would show that if you kept the body's vitamin d level so we measured as 25 hydroxy vitamin d to a level that harvard school of public health has been recommending for 40 years Okay, normal in Nevada, I live in Las Vegas, it's a sunny state, is about 30. That's a pitiful vitamin D level. Okay, Harvard School of Public Health recommends a level between 70 and 90. Why? Because below 50, no benefits of vitamin D. But when you start to go above 50 and get that sweet spot range of 70 to 90, what do we see? 50% risk reduction in colon cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. These are huge risk reductions. And I've had physicians say to me before, when I would spout this out with data, with the studies in hand, Robert, that's just, that's just a vitamin. That's not medicine. That's snake oil. What? Well, you can take it as a supplement or you can just go outside. You got to expose more than arms and neck. That's the problem in Nevada. We're not outside very much when it's 110 degrees. And when we are outside, it's just, it's just the arms and, you know, above the neck. It's not enough surface area. You got to at least get some time out in the sun there. You, you and I aren't selling a supplement. We're not selling the hormone therapy. It's just, you know, get some, get some sun exposure. Get your vitamin D level built up. You'll actually feel better. You'll be in a better mood. Let's get morning sun exposure, right? When the sun's low in the sky, uh, it's primarily red light. <clears throat> you have red chromophores on a number of different enzymes that run mitochondria, so to make energy. You have red chromophores on enzymes that are activated in your eyeballs, as the blood is coursing through your eyeballs, you're getting ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Don't wear your sunglasses. You're killing pathogens, okay, because it's ultraviolet radiation exposed to the pathogens right there in your eyeballs. And you have the red light from the sun driving red chromophores that are responsible for making neurotransmitters. And what did people do during COVID? Oh, yeah. the World Health Organization, close the beaches. Don't go outside. Don't go get your yep. vitamin D. Don't improve your mood. Don't get exposure without sunglasses to UV blood irradiation while you take a walk on the beach, which is pumping your lymphatic system, which is clearing all these nasty bugs that the UV radiation is killing. While you're also barefoot on that beach, picking up loads and loads of electrons because the spacing of your, uh, of your walk is going to create an arc between your two feet and you're going to absorb lots of electrons on that beach. No, WHO says close the beaches. Come on. I'm not surprised. Now, let's just remember, 
um, vitamin D in northern latitudes when we're not in Las Vegas. Um, we don't get as much vitamin D exposure from the sun, um, especially in the winter because of the angle of the sun. So um, although I still promote being outside, supplementation, especially during the winter, is probably necessary and even during the summer because most of us don't sunbathe naked. So, um, you know, we do need plenty of vitamin D. Now, let's go back on PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, Prilosec, Nexium. They decrease the absorption of vitamin D. And decrease the absorption just, of a lot of nutrients. Yeah. Right. Uh, vitamin D, calcium. Okay. So it puts you at risk for osteoporosis. Yet another drug that big pharma sells to fix women's bones. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. And I really honestly believe that big pharma, I had a guy in my podcast who worked in the pharmaceutical industry. His name's Sam Tran, and he actually, we got, um, hopefully we won't get censored today, um, but we, he's the only one I got censored on like all platforms, even the podcast platforms. And he basically works for pharmaceutical industries, and he believes that they create drugs that cause side effects so later on they can treat those side effects, including cancer. And at first I thought he was kind of crazy, but now I look at what's went on over the last two years, and I, and I believe it. I believe I believe big pharma is inherently evil, and I'm not saying that there's not good drugs because you know we have life saving drugs out there, you know, especially for acute conditions. But you know, for chronic disease, um, drugs are not the answer. No, I think what we're going to see is not only medicine changing, like you and I previously uh, talked about. How many more practitioners and patients are going to embrace this natural or this integrative paradigm? But we're also going to see a lot of old drugs repurposed for a number of things, old, inexpensive drugs, because, you know, we've probably read articles, you and I both, over the last year or so about the activity of drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine on solid tumors. Yes, there's activity there. Uh, hydroxychloroquine has activity to prevent or potentially treat HIV. This is not well known because once those drugs lose patent, our is there an army of sales representatives out there talking about the drug? No. Is there representatives from the manufacturer at those big medical meetings like I went to? Remember the Prilosec car, the NASCAR at Digestive Diseases Week, the Proton? No, when those drugs are off patent, there's no more promotion. And there's so much good medical literature and research published, but what do practitioners have the time to read? Because remember, back to them, it's medical school is only what they're fed and often medical schools are subsidized with clinical research grants from drug companies. And that's one of the things that I did right in, in the drug industry was I needed patients for hepatitis C. Okay. So I went to all the tr clinical trial sites in the Western United States. It's very competitive there too, because two major companies were on the market at the time before oral therapy for hepatitis C. And I would need, you know, between me and my colleagues around the country, we need a thousand patients to get through the trial. But when I go to these major universities, say, hey, no, sorry, Robert, you know, your company's only paying like five grand a patient. These other companies are paying us 10,000 a patient. So these, uh, these investigators are rainmakers, right? And the investigators don't get that money necessarily. They get paid to have their salary job. But then if they're part of the research, you know, they're published in the top tier of those journal articles for launching the drug, they get speaking engagements, and I recall, you know, with the company that I worked for, that you have uh, somebody treating hepatitis C, typically salaried, say, 140, 160,000 a year. But they could make another half a million a year in speaking fees from uh, the pharmaceutical companies, right? Driving what their perception of this medicine should be. And, you know, to break that model 
and to open up to repurpose generic drugs, to uh, hormone therapy, to you know replacing nutrients. I, I think you're 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 absolutely right. This is the direction we're going to go. Yeah, and I, I forget too. You're at northern latitude. You don't have uh, so much sun that we have an overabundance here. <laughs> right. So look up uh, what's called a spurty light. S p e r t i. S p e r t i. Light. Okay. Put that on a bathroom counter. And that will mimic the sun. And there you can be in your bathroom, expose your torso, get some sunlight, build vitamin D in your skin. But don't forget the importance of the light exposure and the eyes. Yeah, I haven't heard that part. That's good. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing I love about um, our podcast is that I, I get to learn just like our listeners and viewers do because I learn something from smart people like you all the time. So. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, and, you know, if people only knew the funding behind pharma pharmacy schools and medical schools, they would really, really probably open their eyes and maybe be surprised. I'm, I'm kind of surprised when I look back and I will tell you, Robert, this is sad to say. And um, I love my profession. I love what I've done. Now, I wouldn't like it if I was doing the regular retail pharmacy thing, just as you didn't. But I will tell you, after reading the real Anthony Fauci book, I'm in the middle of it right now, it makes me question my entire pharmacy education. Not entire, because it's always a learned experience, and it's always you always gain something. But I tell you what, there's just a lot of things I don't know if I can believe anymore. Um, it's, it's, it's really tough. Well, you know, I've gone through the, that same uh, transition, and I'm seeing this in some younger pharmacists. You know, I had to hire a couple uh, last year, and I brought them on board. And these are recent grads. And you're right, the way the education is driven, uh, it's pharmacists are in the dispensing model. But to know the stuff that you and I know, it took some extra time yeah. uh, to research and learn beyond pharmacy school, but we had that foundation. That foundation to me was really important because I've always looked at, well, with my pharmacy degree, uh, I understand more broadly a certain number of things that if I wanted to learn and research more and continue to educate myself, well, it's it's a whole lot easier because we've had pharmacology and physiology, anatomy and physio pathophysiology. We had all these courses, right? But then it's also the scientific mind, uh, which you and I both have. And say, well, what's best for that patient, that customer mind, uh, that patient? Because you and I know we're the free healthcare professional, right? What does someone have to do to come and ask you a question at your facility or mine? They just have to pull the door open and walk in and say, hey, right. I have a question, <laughs> right? And, and, and you and I both, we want to have answers. So we have studied, you know, for a long time outside that, that pharma-driven, pharma-controlled educational model. And I think patients resonate with that. And then moving on to getting finding practitioners that are like-minded as well. This is going to be a, a big driver. Yeah, I, I really like it. Uh, I think it is going to, to change because the pharmaceutical corruption, I think, has only gotten more desperate in the yep. last 10 years. Yep. Because of all those drugs, like I said, they, they went off 18 of the top 20 selling drugs of all time, off patent by 2018. What do they have to do next? They've, right. Their number one goal of pharmaceutical companies is to maintain value for the shareholder. It isn't to provide health for the consumer. No. So we have to realize that. And it's a reason. there's a reason why it is the largest lobby. And I think we're going to continue to see a break from that model. And like you said, too, did they, did they poison us? Did they create a 25-year customer? Right. You got, you're in your 30s. You're on an NSAID. You're on Naproxen or ibuprofen because you injured a joint. But 
you got that joint pain, that arthritis pain. Maybe you're eating something that's inflaming your joints, but you're on that anti-inflammatory for years, not just the six weeks like they're supposed to be. So now you do need a proton pump inhibitor, right? Because your stomach is a wreck. It's right. a side effect of those drugs. Now yeah. you're absorbing a bunch of nutrients, so you're losing bone. But right. I used to make the joke, say, well. It goes on and on. Create a 25-year customer, either intentionally or accidentally. But whatever the benefit is for the shareholders of the pharmaceutical company, they want to propel it. And they put Sally Field out there in commercials to let you know which drug is going to you know, protect your bones. Uh, yeah. I, just, I just don't like it. And the more and more consumers... You know, listen to a show like this or, or talk to people like you and me and realize, you know, that's right. They start to, I've had people tune in and say, I didn't realize how many drug ads were even when I watch a show on Netflix, right? Or, yep. or watch it on a streaming service that's not completely paid for and they have to intersperse it with ads. Gosh, it's, it's these pharmaceutical ads all the time. Yeah, that is what's created. I mean, it's, it's been brilliant, evil, but brilliant. What the perception of medicine is. From pharmacy school education, medical practitioner education, PANPs, MDs, whatever, to consumers. This is what medicine is. It's these drugs. And then let's make sure the doctor has less than eight minutes to talk to a patient about maybe one problem that could be two drugs at an office visit. And you've seen the commercials too. I love the Abilify commercial. The concerned husband is sitting there with his wife who's, you know, they're they're making her out to be clearly insane. Oh, you see, honey, we're going to get you this drug and you're going to be better. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad I'm here to get that drug. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, Robert, we got to end our show here. We our, our time is up. Um, always a, a pleasure to chat with you. And I, you know, I'm, I'm proud and honored to call you a fellow pharmacist because it's nice to meet um, pharmacists that are on the same page as me. Cause I get called crazy a lot. My, a lot of my uh, pharmacy colleagues, um, so it's really nice to uh, to see that somebody's on the same page as me. So, um, and thank you for helping realize our goal today to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. Hopefully, our listeners and viewers will um, take this to heart and and realize that they ultimately are in charge of their own health, and they should be, um, and not some health insurance company. So, so thank you so much for that, Robert. All right, thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for listening um, and watching. Um, uh, health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Stay tuned Thursday when we will have Dean Jargo on our show. And we're going to kind of segue into, we talked about free market principles in healthcare today. Robert and I did a little bit. We're going to segue into that. Dean is going to talk all about free market healthcare. So you can watch and listen and realize how you can ultimately take charge of your own health. You realize the corruption behind it now, and you realize you probably don't want to be part of it. Um, so tune in Thursday. Um, it is 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and tune in, and you'll be um, we'll have Dean on, and we'll be talking about free market principles in healthcare and how you can be liberated from the system. So, so uh, tune in Thursday, Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thanks for watching. <laughs>